0: The seminary that I attended in the early 2000s, Reformed Theological Seminary uh, down in Orlando, Florida, had a motto that that captured quite well its purpose as a a seminary, as an institution. And it was uh, to have a mind for truth and a heart for God. And in a similar kind of vein, a covenant seminary in St. Louis, uh, the uh, denomination, our denomination's uh, educational seminary uh, arm, has this as its kind of central theme, equipping pastors, counselors, and ministry leaders for a lifetime of faithful ministry. Uh, nearly every seminary, university, uh, organization, institution has a primary purpose uh, for their existence, some aim that they are seeking to serve. Well, this morning we are beginning a new series in a book of the Bible, 1 John. And as you're turning to 1 John toward the end of the Scriptures in the New Testament, John states his central aim in writing this letter. And it comes toward the end of the letter. It's 1 John 5, 13. John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. That you may know you have eternal life. Behind John's words there are a whole doctrine within our Christian faith we call assurance. The assurance of our salvation. That is having assurance or confidence in what we believe, why we believe it, the security spiritually that gives to us in our Christian lives, and navigating a world full of falsehoods, erroneous claims disguised and presented often as truth. And so the Lord, through the Apostle John in this letter, is going to help us in this. The assurance of our faith, what we believe, why we we believe it, in navigating uh, this ever-changing world and culture in which we find ourselves. Uh, The Apostle John, the same author of the Gospel of John, wrote toward the end of his Gospel a similar purpose. That's in John chapter 20, verse 30 and following. There, John said, these things are written... So, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So, the Gospel of John was written that one may come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. First John is written that those who do believe would be assured, confident, as they live as Christians. And oh, how we need this. Navigating this world in which we live. And this God will give us by His grace uh, through His Word. So 1 John chapter 1, we will look this morning at the first four verses. Really an introduction uh, to the whole of the letter. First John 1, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to God's Word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy, or your joy, may be complete. These words, as I noted, come from the the Apostle John, uh, one of the original twelve apostles that Jesus had called to Himself, full-time and ministering alongside of Him. John is writing at a unique time uh, in history, Decades and decades have passed since the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. Uh, John is likely writing here as the last surviving apostle. The acts of the apostles have taken place. Uh, History tells us he would be the only one not martyred. So he's in the last years of life, perhaps in his 80s or 90s, And after departing from Jerusalem, after the destruction of of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70, he, he went to Ephesus, most likely, resumed his apostolic ministry in that very important but idolatrous city, Ephesus. Significant to know is that the first generation of Christians, including those who were eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus himself, were passing away. John himself is coming to the end of his own earthly life. Now, the second generation of Christians, some whom we know all the way down from history, like Polycarp, a disciple of John, or Ignatius, or Clement of Rome, these first, second century Christians, along with the whole common second generation church, would now have to take up the baton of the gospel as citizens of Christ's kingdom. And uh, as we say, the Christian faith... It's not a sprint. It's not a marathon. It is a long-distance relay. The value of our faith not only has worth for us. This is so significant as we face a a godless society. Our faith is not only important for us, but for those who would come after us. We stand upon the faith, the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And so John here is writing not just to preserve the truth of who Christ is, the absolute significance of the faith, but to pass this on to the next generation. John's words here are a letter. This is not a mere theological treatise, though it's full of rich theology. You sense that in the opening verses. It's not a historical narrative, though it is history. It is a letter. And you may have picked up already, it's not a typical letter that we see in in the New Testament. There's no greeting at the beginning. There's no specific church that he is identifying. There's no final greeting or benediction at the end. But it's certainly an epistle, likely intended for churches around uh, the surrounding city of Ephesus. It's a letter. He says, That which was manifest, we proclaim to you. There's an audience he has in mind. Verse 4, throughout, uh, he says, we are writing these things for your joy or our joy. Throughout the letter, he he refers to them as little children or beloved. And he has very practical aims in mind for the believers. As was mentioned, the assurance of faith, uh, the theme of loving one another, we see in this letter. And even here in the opening four verses, the theme of fellowship, fellowship with God, fellowship with one another, and joy. As we come to the opening four verses, they're kind of a prologue to the whole letter. And you see just how theologically rich the opening verses are, but also very practical. The first four verses are actually one extended sentence in Greek. And it's a very calculated and profound statement and thought that John provides us. Raymond Brown, the late uh, Christian scholar, called this passage a grammatical obstacle course. Don't fear, we're going to navigate this uh, together. It's well worth it. There is treasure and gold in these words. It has a very clear flow uh, to it, these, these opening four verses. Verses 1 and 2, John is capturing really the essence of Christianity. He moves into verse 3 and says, now I'm going to proclaim this to you. And then at the end of 3 and into 4, he states his purpose, that they would know fellowship with one another and with God, and that they would be filled with joy. Here's the Christian faith. We're proclaiming it to you, that you would know fellowship and joy. So as we consider first these verses of 1 and 2, John is capturing here the essence of Christianity. So, this is the Christian message in a nutshell, in summary form. So, look at the text. He says, opening words, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, we've seen, we've looked upon and touched concerning the word of life. The first question is what is that in this first verse? Almost comes across, perhaps as an opening, somewhat impersonal. That which was from the beginning. What is that? Well, the that is referring to the word of life at the end of verse 1. So whatever the word of life is at the end of verse 1, was from the beginning, was heard, seen, looked upon, and touched. Notice also, after verse 1 and after verse 2 in our English versions, there's a dash. This is a way of communicating. This is a parenthetical statement. Verse 2 is a parenthesis. So you come to the end of verse 1 and you're told that which was from the beginning, this word of life, and then the word of life is explained further in verse 2. The word of life. The life was manifest. We've seen it. We testify to it. And we're proclaiming to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. Furthermore, notice that the word of life there at the end of verse 1 is referred to in verse 2 as the eternal life. So the word of life is also the eternal life. Was from the beginning, likely eternity past, John has in mind, was manifest in the world, seen, heard, looked at, and touched. And now we are proclaiming it to you. And this word of life, which is the eternal life, is referred to at the end of verse 3 as Jesus Christ himself. And I must say, one, it was a joy digging back into these verses. I felt like I was kind of brought back into uh, my seminary days and seminary class. If you've not been in a seminary class, uh, welcome, because this is John's class. Uh, This is, I think, very deep, rich, profound content that John is giving to us. And we'll see, uh, perhaps this morning and in weeks to come, how applicable and important, practically, this is uh, for us. He's giving us instruction. And we know how important instruction is, learning is. We are learners as Christians before we practice so often. No one would want a a first-year medical student coming into your hospital bedside and, and saying to you, well, sir, ma'am, we're low on physician staff, uh, so they've called me up. It looks like I'll be doing your heart surgery. The good news is I, I did just read about the cardiovascular system earlier uh, this week. No, you go back to class, please, for a couple more years. Do your residency, and then come, come and see me. Instruction is important. Learning is important. John is giving us here instruction. This is a didactic, instructive message centering on the heart of the Christian message. Then it will flow into a life of practice and application throughout the rest of his letter. You may have already made the connection, but his opening words are quite reminiscent of his opening words in his gospel. Same author in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld his glory. And here we read, that which was from the beginning was made manifest. Both John 1.1 in his gospel and 1 John 1.1, I think bring us back to another 1.1, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All three of these texts speak about this beginning. And perhaps I've said it before, it seems like an audacious thing to claim to know the beginning, how things began, but all the more audacious to claim to know what was already there in the beginning. In the beginning, the gospel says was the Word. The Word was already there. When the beginning began, there was something, someone was there. It's the Word. In Greek, logos. We might say the logos is that divine power which gives life to all things and holds all things together. That Word is Christ. So Jesus Christ did not begin in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. John calls Jesus, in our text here, the eternal life. And then that life was manifest, taking on flesh. What's most remarkable about Christianity, what distinguishes it from all philosophies and worldviews, is not the idea of the divine, or the idea of the eternal or supernatural, but that the divine takes on flesh, humanity, That which is eternal comes into the temporal. The supernatural moves into the natural world. The infinite moves into the finite. And this comes through so powerfully as John piles on evidence after evidence of the divine taking on human flesh in the person of Christ. He says, "...that which was from the beginning we heard. We have seen with our eyes." We looked upon, our hands touched. This one from eternity past who came into the world. We've seen, we've heard, we've touched. John's giving these verbs of perception. Seeing, hearing, touching. Why? To testify. He's testifying, he says in verse 2. This is testimony that he would proclaim him to you. He's saying that the words that Jesus spoke To him and the apostles, many years ago, they're still ringing in their ears. And We're making those words and we're making him known to you. We think about ideas. Ideas can be very powerful. But ideas do not speak. Philosophies can be very powerful, but philosophies do not speak. In Christ, the divine, the eternal, speaks to us comes into our world, extends grace, ministers to us, offers His gracious and merciful hand. The focus here in these opening verses, among other things, is about the life of Christ and the life that He gives to those who believe in Him. So that word life is central in this text. More than the word word in John's gospel, that logos, because he is referred to here in 1 John as the word of life, and then the life is manifest, he goes to say, and he is the eternal life. The late James Boyce, preaching many years ago on this text, said there's an important principle here. For while it is true that it is impossible to proclaim Christ without doctrine, nevertheless it is true that it is Jesus and not a system of thought who is the essential core of the Christian proclamation. A system, he says, is not life, nor does it transform a life. A system in and of itself is nothing. Which is why a person can know doctrine the scriptures, theology. But apart from the living Christ in them, it amounts to what we might call a dead orthodoxy. There's no power. There's no sanctification. It's why uh, people can know a biblical view of marriage or a father or mother, a biblical view of parenting, yet without the living Christ in them, it's going to be a father, a mother, husband and wife, empty. Empty seeking to fill their own cup with holes in it. Just last week, as the elders gathered on on Tuesday, as we do each month for prayer, prayer for us as a congregation and, and other matters, during prayer, one of the elders prayed essentially this, Lord, help us and use us to point people to Jesus. And this was the phrase that stuck with me. For Jesus is compelling. That's the truth. That's what we have to offer. It's not our system of thought, ultimately, that transforms people. It is the living Christ himself. That's who we are to point people to. He is the one who is compelling. He is the one who has power. And then very important in these opening words is the context. John is not giving us uh, this language here in a vacuum he is writing in light of a falsehood and a dangerous philosophy before and throughout the first century and perhaps beyond. And that's known as Gnosticism. That's what is part in part behind what John is addressing. That word comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. And among other things, the Gnostics taught two things. One, that salvation was through a secret knowledge only known to certain individuals, the initiated, we might say. And two, that all matter, physical matter, was considered evil, which meant that the physical body was evil, while the soul was good. These were and are, anti-Christian teachings. And they led at times to at least two extremes. One was an extreme kind of asceticism. The beating, the punishing of one's own body in order to kind of free the spirit. And two, it would lead to licentiousness. This kind of throwing off of, of all restraints. Sexually, morally. Thinking if the body is evil, restraints do not apply. But in Christianity, matter and the physical body are not evil. They are a part of God's good creation in need of his redemption and restoration and the use of those instruments like our bodies for his holy purposes. And here, as John speaks of hearing, seeing, touching, emphasizing the physical, not only, do we, not only do we have Christ, the divine, taking on the physical, heightening the value of physical life, coming to live for us and die for us, rise for us, but in assuming flesh, he comes near to us. Our God is a God who has come near, still draws near through his word, through sacrament, through his spirit. And then he says, here's why he came. Verse 3 That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy, or your joy, could be translated, may be complete. This is Christ's twofold purpose in coming one is fellowship. Uh, fellowship is, is one of those biblical words that can kind of wear very thin. Kind of like a coin, exposed to the elements over the years, hard to identify, wears very thin. This happens to the notion of fellowship. Uh, this fellowship that John is mentioning is much more than uh, the sharing of a conversation over a cup of coffee. might include that but it is really a deep share of things we have in common. That the same God of grace and love who had you in mind for redemption had me in mind. The same Savior whose love led him to shed his blood for you shed his blood for me. The same future glory that we cannot comprehend yet awaits you awaits me. The same central purpose that is to drive your life is to drive mine. To bring glory to our glorious God. It is a fellowship with one another and it's a fellowship with Him. He says our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And then two, He came so that our joy may be complete. It means permanently full or permanently filled. Jesus, in his farewell discourse in John's Gospel, speaks of joy in relationship to his disciples three different times. And in all three occasions, he's concerned that his disciples have a joy that is fulfilled. That his own joy, the joy of Christ, would fill the life of his disciples. Sometimes we have to fight for that joy in our lives. As Nehemiah said, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The same Christ whom John heard with his own ears, saw with his own eyes, touched with his own hands, this Christ he proclaims to us. Might we have ears to hear his word, hands to touch the bread, the cup of the Lord's Supper eyes to see the beauty of Christ and his cross and in all of his creation. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that the word of life, Jesus Christ, would have central place in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, that you would grow us in, in wisdom as we journey through this life. Recognizing the, uh, the the shifting and, and changing culture around us on matters so important to us in regards to our identity as people and the purpose of life and creation, Lord, we pray that you would uh, you would give life to our souls, that you would fill us with joy, and that our joy would be centered around what you have done in our lives and what you're continuing to do in in this, your fellowship. We pray that you would continue to guide us, uh, guide us by your word, Uh, give us power by this word, uh, the word of Christ and the Holy Spirit. We pray, O Lord, that you would uh, encourage those hearts who may be uh, down or distressed, uh, discouraged, that we would know more and more uh, of the joy of Christ, we pray that you would cause us to fight the good fight of the faith, that we would stand with you victorious and grateful for your calling in our lives. Cause us by your mercy to, to respond to your word, to live faithfully after you with joy and thanksgiving. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.